Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. It is the eve of the coronation. His Majesty King Charles III is about to seal his promise to the people of the realm with a solemn pledge and a crown, alongside his wife, Queen Camilla. Australia remains part of this extraordinary event, largely because of the efforts of one man. When the Republican class nestled in the halls of Canberra, tried to snatch power for themselves and tear up history's most stable system of government, a small group of conservative rebels stood against the forces of self-interested power and said no to the politicians' republic. I am joined now by the national convener of the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, David Flint. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alexander. You've been very kind. I mustn't forget the almost 60,000 foot soldiers that we had across the Commonwealth. And the people who were running it in many ways are Kerry Jones, who's now with the Constitutional Education Fund, and David Elliott, who was a recent minister in the New South Wales government who has a wonderful piece in the Telegraph this morning on the coronation, well worth reading. Well. That may be the case, David, but I'd still like to know, where's your knighthood for services to the realm? Well, of course, those are not allowed anymore. When they gave Sir David Smith his knighthood, which was the Queen's personal gift in the Royal Victorian Order, apparently uh, Bob Hawke didn't like it and became angrier and angrier about it. And the palace took note and thereafter, even people who should have got a knighthood. For example, Jim Frecklington, who did those wonderful two coaches, the Australian State Coach and the Diamond Jubilee Coach, which is the one that the King and Queen will be using to go from Buckingham Palace to, uh, to the Abbey. It's a wonderful piece of art. It's also technologically wonderful and very up-to-date and very comfortable compared with the, the golden carriage but uh, he should have received a knighthood because th these works of art will be known for hundreds of years and people will, they'll just marvel at the fact that these were produced in a shed at Manly in Sydney. It's quite extraordinary and he should be rewarded, I think, for his work. Yes, well, they don't give out awards for beauty or skill anymore. If you have a look at the uh, art prizes and the comedy awards, anybody deserving of a real award is not going to get one. But look, yes. David... They've frozen, they've, if I may interrupt, they've also frozen the, the knighthoods which are in the gift of the sovereign, uh, particularly the Royal Victorian Order, 
but also uh, the highest award, the Order of the Garter. All of those have been frozen out. We normally would have somebody with the Order of the Garter there. There's nobody there. There would obviously be somebody worthy, but uh, the political Republicans, and they are political Republicans because they don't want a real republic. They want a politician's republic in which the checks and balances on the politicians are even less than now. And uh, they are determined to get rid of the crown from the Australian constitution. Yes, but getting rid of all these awards, it takes away part of our heritage and stops people from being engaged in the monarchy because if they're not giving out awards and not giving out service achievements, then there's less interaction between the public and the monarchy. And I think that's part of the point. But the vast majority of people, David, have never seen a coronation of an English monarch. Is the longevity of these reigns a mark of our more peaceful and politically stable times brought about by the creation of the constitutional monarchy? After all, Prince Harry is about the closest thing we're likely to get to a War of the Roses scenario. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. This is the stable part, the very stable part of the constitutional system. But it also has a wonderful side, which uh, John Ruddick realised. He was uh, He's the uh, leader of the Liberal Democrats in the New South Wales Parliament, and he when he was a young man, was a Republican, he, he came across, across just an observation usually attributed to Winston Churchill. And that changed him from being a Republican, thinking we should use the American model, which Republicans here don't argue. But he decided immediately from that small saying that this is the, the right system. And that saying is, the crown is important, not for the power it wields, but the power it denies others. And that's a wonderful part of the system which emerged as the constitutional monarchy evolved. And it really only evolved after the American War of Independence. And uh, we've had such a system since then. This is, a, this is something which has evolved through trial and error. It hasn't been some academic sitting up in... Uh, a government-funded office designing a perfect constitutional system adopted by some foolish political party. This has evolved over time through trial and error. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say, and the proof here is that in everything which is good in the world, in every measure, whether it be law and order, whether it be living standards, whatever it is, you will find among the top 10 and the top 20 a highly disproportionate number of constitutional monarchies. They always come, whatever the measure is of something good, whatever the measure is, you find there a disproportionate number of constitutional monarchies, which indicates that this is a very good system of government. Yes, well, I've always thought of it more like a bird where we've got one wing of parliament and one wing of the crown and only together can the system of government actually fly. And that means that if one is unhappy, then the people get asked to fix the problem, which is how a political system should work, because neither the government nor the crown can rule. But in the system of uh, a republic, you have a politician in both the check and balance role, which is, you know, we all know what politicians are like. It's hardly a good system. But... David, monarchies throughout history, particularly the English monarchy, have had a long and rich history 
of monarchs who had to fight for their position and to prove their value. And it was pretty ruthless. If you didn't do the right thing, you're, you were not guaranteed a life of security. Could we say that uh, in today's modern politics, something that we might have lost is the merit, the immediate punishment of merit in our political system, because there is a certain assurance of power for our prime minister. But if you failed in old times, well, it could end badly. Yes, well, uh, the, the monarchy was, the, the English monarchy has always been under the law, and that was specifically emphasised, as we know, in the Magna Carta, from which uh, so much is drawn. But gradually, gradually, the role of the crown moved from being a political, an active political instrument. Even after the Glorious Revolution in 1688, the crown continued as a political executive or a significant part of the political executive. And the, co the concept of responsible government, that is to say the government is formed, the real government is formed, on the floor of the lower house of parliament. That only emerged fully after the American War of Independence. And it was because, I think, it was, in my view, it was because of the role George the First, uh, George the Third rather, George the Third took in the American War of Independence. And uh, that was not to be repeated. Well, David, you have done more work to maintain the image of the monarchy in Australia than the monarchy itself, I would say. Do you remember where your dedication to this cause came from? Was there a little David Flint wandering around who wanted to be king or was it something a little deeper? I don't think I wanted to be king. I, I, came, I came as a stranger in a way because my my mother's family came from what is now Indonesia. It was the Dutch East Indies. And they came to Australia and they were subjected to, uh, to uh, a test at uh, Sydney. When they arrived in Sydney, they were given a dictation test to prove uh, that they belonged to the correct race. I think they, they must have been suspicious because uh, we were obviously a Eurasian family. And uh, they, my grandfather wanted to buy a farm, which he did. And I can remember from during my childhood that uh, the very best uh, magazine which was published at that time was the Bulletin. And the Bulletin had underneath, uh, underneath the letterhead, its slogan across the front was Australia for the white man. So I could not be any doubt as to the intention country, but I, like I think most of my generation, saw the crown as of great significance to Australia, and that was something which all Australians held, I think. There was a period in the 19th century when a wish to control immigration led to the development of the first significant Republican movement in Australia. And that was because the British insisted on a liberal immigration policy. The British did not have a racist immigration policy, whereas the Australian colonies were determined not to allow large numbers of Asians in because they feared particularly the Chinese. They feared that they would come in large numbers. They feared that they would undermine the standards, the labor standards, which had been adopted in Australia, the strongest uh, opponent of 
coloured immigration was the Australian Labour Party, although they would now pretend that they are the most advanced in racist matters. But uh, I, I think that as a child, I saw that the Crown was a very significant institution, as all of us would, but uh, I was very impressed with the Crown. And although when I was young, I was more to the left than I am now, I never hesitated from a belief in the constitutional monarchy because it seems to be one of the best systems of government in the world. And if you, if you go through the forms of government, the alternative forms of government, which have been formed from, for example, the French Revolution and the drastic search of the French for some system which would work and the fact that they have five republics and uh, they've had uh, two empires and uh, three or four monarchies indicates that they've been experimenting all along and whenever they have a crisis of the, as they have at the moment, there's talk in France of a sixth republic. The American system seemed to work, but it's in recent years, there's been a breakdown. Uh, the president, President Biden is doing things in breach of the law, for example, in relation to immigration, which led uh, to a Stuart King losing his throne and a Stuart, another Stuart King losing his head. Uh, having an executive going against the law as Mr. Biden does. He, he seems to completely ignore the law, not only in relation to immigration, having thrown open the southern border in clear breach of immigration law. When there have been bank crushes, he has decided to bail out particular banks without congressional approval. And he has, as I understand it from American lawyers, he has no power to do that, but he, he has done it and he's not being corrected on those things. I think in many respects, a constitutional monarchy seems to work very well. The only republic of which I uh, think we could learn considerably is Switzerland. It's not there in its republican centri centrality. It's more in the way in which its, its federation works and the fact that they have worked out how to make their politicians accountable in a way that no other country ever has. And I think we should be following that because we followed some aspects of uh, Swiss constitutional provision, particularly in the referendum and the, the double majority. But we should be copying what the French do, what the Swiss do in relation to the accountability of politicians. Well, we talk about what the Crown sort of meant to Australia. I did notice something when I was travelling through uh, the regional areas of Australia, these older towns, many of which uh, have long since started to decline because obviously they're no longer gold running towns, which is what they were originally. And in all of these pubs and old hotels, they had the portrait of the queen or the king, depending on how old the, uh, the establishment was. And when you think about it, Australia was isolated in a way that very few colonies were at the very edge of the world. And so for many generations, the Australian people really only had this imagery and this idea of a monarchy as their connection back to 
civilization at large. And so I think it held uh, an almost spiritual feeling to a lot of people, more of an idea than a reality as their connection back to their ancestry and their history. But when I was traveling through Canada, we had a, a very interesting experience. We had a little uh, backpackers van there and they had uh, someone from New Zealand, someone from Australia, they had someone from the UK, and then they had an American. And we all felt like we were part of the colony, that we were siblings, and the American wanted to be part of our little club, but we're like, no, no, you, you ditched us, so you're not one of us. But it is that camaraderie of being part of an empire where you are related, but you have your independent systems of government. And this familiar bond, I think, is more successful of holding uh, world peace be it between nations than treat uh, peace treaties at the UN, because we have a deeper connection with each other. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, the, the British were the most benign of colonial powers and the most advanced and have remained the most advanced because colonialism is not dead. Colonialism still exists. It's practiced by Beijing, for example, in relation to the countries near to them, for example, Mongolia, Inner Mongolia, and uh, Tibet are colonized territories and they're obviously anxious to colonize Taiwan. The Russians are, are doing the same. We thought that the the old Soviet Union, which was empire, collapsed and that it was replaced by something better, but it is, it is obviously a very similar system under Mr. Putin. And other, there are empires in Africa. The, the, the imperialism has not in any way ended. The British were the most advanced of colonial powers, the most benign, and we saw that in the instructions given to Philip in relation to the indigenous people very firm instructions that if if uh, settlers or convicts or the military did things to the Aboriginal people which were harmful or dangerous, that they should be treated in the same way as, as the white uh, criminals would be treated and they should be subject to the same remedies that the law would provide. The, the British were very advanced in relation to the colonies and there's been a lot of... Uh, misrepresentation and fabrication of Aboriginal history in that regard. Uh, I think we're fortunate. We're fortunate that we had the British as the colonizers. This is, of course, the only empire which has been followed by something where the former colonial power is in a close relationship with the former colonies. You don't see this with other European empires in the way that we have the Commonwealth. And that close relationship indicates how well the British did their, performed their role as a, an imperial power. And I think you're absolutely right. There is still a family between us, particularly of the older dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, to an extent, South Africa. Uh, and I, I think that will continue. David, you are one of the only people to have won a referendum or helped win a referendum and you did so under enormous pressure. The loss of the monarchy, should it happen, would open up a vacuum of power to be filled with, as Canberra hopes, weak and easily corrupted political figureheads. Now, we've all heard the story about the fight to stop the Republic, and some of us even lived through it. But what I want to know is, could you sense the desire for personal power amongst the Republican camp? Oh, without doubt. And Every model, they only produced, the Australian Republican movement 
is, I think, in many ways, the spokespeople uh, for the politicians. Because every Republican model they've produced, and in three decades, there've only been three models, but every one of those can be classified, as we learn to classify them, as a politician's republic. Michael Kirby, who wrote the charter of ACM, said, and it was made as a, as a bridging charter of people with different views. And he put in it there a provision which is, some of us believe that we are already a republic, a crowned republic. That was John Howard, that was Tony Abbott. They believed we're already a republic. If you look at the terms of uh, the entity which was established in 1901, go to the preamble to the Constitution Act, and there you'll find the recital that whereas the people of the several colonies, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown and under the constitution. An indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown and under the constitution. Now, the word commonwealth, and this apparently was something Queen Victoria commented on, we chose the word commonwealth, which is the English word for a republic. Republics are, uh, can work very well, and they're not necessarily ones without uh, a crown within them. And we see that in the one which we have here in Australia, we see it in Canada, we see it in the United Kingdom. And this system works very well. And those who were trying to change it were doing it for their own purposes. Bill Hayden, who had been the leader of the Labour Party, who became the Governor General, which terrified or worried people on the uh, Conservative side who thought that he would wind down the position of Governor General, Bill Hayden told the Queen that Paul Keating was using the Republic as a distraction against some of his failings and that he would continue to do that. But he also used it as a wedge. He used it as a wedge to divide the Liberal Party because once the newspapers and once the Republicans said that a republic was inevitable, some naive liberals, some opportunistic liberals, and some who were both naive and opportunistic jumped onto the Republican bandwagon. Among those who were opportunistic was, I think, fairly, quite fairly, Peter Costello, who saw it. He was a constitutional monarchist. He suddenly became a Republican. It was a way of demonstrating to the world that he was up to date and modern, unlike John Howard, and he wanted John Howard's position. They never, never did a Keating, never really tried to seriously take it, although there were a couple of crises. But he changed. A number of, uh, a number of uh, liberal politicians changed because they, they thought that uh, we were going to become a republic and they'd better jump onto that bandwagon. But people who want to change the Constitution of Australia, and this is relevant to the voice campaign, if you want to change the Constitution of Australia, it must be to improve and to significantly improve the governance of Australia. Unless it's for something of that nature, then what is the purpose of doing it? And Australians have demonstrated in only approving eight out of 44 referendums that they won't easily 
approve a change to the constitution. Well, I do, I do love how they keep saying, oh, they're so modern for wanting a republic. But the truth is, republics are much older than constitutional monarchies. So really, exactly. the constitutional monarchy is the modern type of political system that replaced the older republics, which were not as good at managing civilization, or at least not as peaceful and liberal. Uh, so that's something I always find quite fascinating. But also, politicians only ever seek to change our constitutional monarchy because they want absolute power. They're annoyed at the power that is being denied to them. And if that is a reason for a politician to seek to change the system, that is not a good reason. And people should be very concerned about that. But at the moment, our constitutional monarchy does dispel with prime ministers and governments that fail in their basic obligation to the Australian people. And in 2023, Canberra is playing with some extremely dangerous identity politics, including the potential enshrinement of a racial bureaucracy and the establishment of widespread affirmative action, which of course is nothing more than bigotry wearing a jacket of virtue. So could there be a worse time for Australia to shake up its political system? Well, you're absolutely right. And we must protect and defend it. The government is... Uh sending out the signal that if there is to be a new republic referendum, it will be after the current voice referendum, which at least is a good thing. <laughs> They'd be very unwise to try the two at the same time because that will only encourage a, a no vote in each. I, I do think that if the Australian people, provided the Australian people have not changed significantly, they will be very wary of this because they have a very long, wrong a long record, the Australian people, of being very careful about changing the constitutional system and they are very wary of what politicians propose. However, if the politicians are virtually unanimous, then they are more likely to agree to it as they did in 1967 and as they did in relation to changing the age of High Court judges. But uh, that has only occurred, really, where, where both sides have been in agreement as to the change which should be proposed. Even that can lead to a wrong decision. Uh, there's not enough time to go into that now, but well, let I me think we Let me just ask a question. Uh, just interrupt you for a second. I apologise, David. But the track record of the Australian public on referendums is interesting. But we have a quirk in that in the last 20 years, there's more brand new Australians in this country as a large percentage of our population than ever before. So they are not descendants of the Australians who were raised in this skeptical society. And many of these migrants come from places like Asia or, or like the African continents where they like republics and they come from violent political systems. And instead of looking to preserving the peaceful system that they came to Australia for, a lot of them seem to be keen to vote back in some kind of republic uh, system instead. So is that not a, a danger in this particular question that we do have a different type of Australian voting in this republic referendum, if it were to come about? Well, there is a danger and uh, there have been cases in other countries where people too easily have agreed that uh, a person a person who, who is offering salvation should be given supreme powers and that's a very dangerous thing to do the idea of some surrendering powers 
because you think that this is this will provide the salvation that you need. Uh, even the ancient Romans, who, as you rightly say, were a republic, you pointed to republics being older. They're certainly older than constitutional monarchies. And the republic continued in Rome, even with an emperor. They were quite able to turn it into an imperial republic. But uh, people have to be careful. And you're right, there has been a change in the, in the uh, composition of the population. Most of the new migrants practice what I might call civic virtue. That is to say, they, they live an orderly life. They, they, uh, they perform in similar ways to the rest of us. And you can see that when you mix among the migrants of Australia, although they don't understand or appreciate perhaps some of the background. I think there is a view among migrants, and there certainly was in the post-war period, that uh, there was some reason why Australia was so successful. It's been well established from studies that uh, the key reason for success of a country is its institutions. It's not its wealth. Otherwise, Venezuela, which sits on a sea of oil, would one, be one of the most successful countries in the world. And Argentina would be as successful as Australia. But they're not. And the reason that they're not is that they don't have the same institutions as Australia has. I remember a few years ago, a, a minister from uh, one of the uh, Argentinian governments was on the ABC and he was asked what was wrong. And he said, look, if, if Argentina at the institutions of Australia, we'd be as good as Australia in 10 years' time. Why, is, why has Argentina, he was asked, why has Argentina, once one of the richest countries in the world, turned into a third world country? And uh, his argument it was quite rightly that Argentina doesn't have those safe institutions that we have. So we would be very foolish. And I would think that a lot of the migrants who see how successful Australia is. And the success is extraordinary because we are a relatively new country in time. Only 1901 as a, a single country and as an independent country, you have to really go to the 20s. But we are one of the five or six oldest continuing democracies in the world. Now that is a record we're there with countries like New Zealand and Canada and the United Kingdom, which is an older country, but also with republics like uh, the United States and Switzerland. But we're one of the oldest continuing democracies in the world. And that is an extraordinary standard. And I think that uh, instead of uh, our immigrants having to learn about cricket, when they take our nationality, they should really be learning about our history. And unfortunately, as you know, there's been a terrible breakdown in education. I spoke the other night at a, a Liberal Party meeting and I, I was going to go into that thing. To, one of the things which is absolutely appalling, and the Liberals were in power in this state for 10 years, is the, the complete downturn in education. I can remember as a boy in a very ordinary primary school, in a very ordinary primary class, where every boy in that class, it was a large class, every boy in that class was literate 
and he was numerate. And you might ask, how do I know that? I know it because the teacher kept control and a lot of the testing was done constantly orally. You had to prove yourself by standing up and reading. You had to prove yourself by answering questions. You had to prove yourself by doing mathematics on the blackboard in front of everybody else. And the teacher had a cane. The cane was not only used for disciplinary purposes, it was also used if he didn't learn quickly enough. And the whole class, the whole class was numerate and literate. And we know today from the testing which we're allowed to see, which they're trying to suppress, that testing shows us that a significant number, particularly of boys, are functionally illiterate and probably innumerate. And how many young people today can work out simple mathematics in their head without a computer or a calculator? You say that, uh, you say that David, and it's funny, even when I was at school, my primary school still had blackboards before we got to the whiteboards. Now they've got full-on tech boards that download their notes straight to their laptop. It's gone out of control. Um, but when we were in this very, I think it was year two or three or something, very young, we had to do our times tables and every child had to meet a basic standard and they didn't mind traumatising us to get there. So we used to have to uh, do the times tables and the last one to finish would have to stand on the table and spend the rest of the lesson on the table so that you got punished for not doing it and you would go back home and you would learn so that you didn't get humiliated next time around and that's good for children at least it educates them it's better to be humiliated as a child and not be humiliated as an adult but now we have adults who can't do things and when they find out that they're not equipped for life instead of going back and learning they look to the big state and go well you can give me money because I deserve to have a living instead of re-educating themselves. And I'm sure that's why we're seeing a push toward socialist style politics, because people are not being equipped to handle life as they were. But let's talk. Alexandra, yeah. could I interrupt you yeah. and ask you what sort of school, you, what sort of primary school you were at? I went to a Christian uh, private school, ah. an Anglican now one. But, yes. but can I say now the same school has gone woke and it's producing teals. And most of my friends grew up into teals. So at least but we're literate though. That's the only good thing is that we can all add and we can all basically spell. But the kids underneath us, my the year literally one below me was when they changed how to learn to read. They fundamentally changed that system. And they were significantly more disadvantaged than we were with our literacy. And we could clearly see that that one change in the education curricula destroyed that generation's ability to read, even though they were at the same school as we were with the same teachers that we had. It's devastating. The ordinary schools of my era, which is a long time ago, the ordinary schools were gold-plated. They're not now. The ordinary schools are leading, the ordinary state schools are leading the decline, I fear, and fortunately, there are some, some exceptions, charter schools, that sort of thing. Certainly religious and private schools are of a high standard. And of course, selective high schools are of a high standard because they've selected the best students. Yeah, that's a bit, but, of, a, that's a bit but, of a cheat, that one, where they, they pull the top students and say, well, we're, we're the top. But um, yeah, it's, there's, I think the more money that we've thrown at education, 
the worse our teaching standards have got. But look, I want to yes. talk to you about King Charles III because it is the eve of the coronation. Now, Charles is a, is a tricky name for a king. Are you surprised that he has decided to keep his regnal name? I mean, I've always said don't tempt fate and Charles as a kingly name seems to be like one hell of a temptation. I thought he would be tempted to change, but I, I feel that he probably thought that people would criticize him even more if he changed his name and became George VII, as one suggestion was. And I think he felt, well, I am Charles, I will stay with Charles. But I agree with you, Charles is, uh, doesn't suggest a good solution, particularly Charles I. Uh, and, you, you know, uh, it, it, that, that example teaches us a lot because the overthrow of Charles led to a worse regime. Cromwell was a, a worse ruler of England than uh, the Stuart kings, certainly for those who like theatre and entertainment and want freedom of religion. It certainly wasn't allowed under Cromwell, and uh, I, I don't think many people would like Cromwell. In fact, in fact uh, one of the reasons why people longed for the restoration of the monarchy was that life was so dull and it wasn't interesting and you the sort of normal activities that you would engage in weren't tolerated by the Puritans. No, well that's the one part of history they don't teach us. They really should explain how uh, England went through this very rapid lesson learning period where they were where they decided that hang on a second politicians with absolute power doesn't end particularly well let's have a slightly improved system which we of course have today but here's a, a question you might not have been asked david it is no secret that the christian faith is in severe decline in the uk which there could be no stark, a starker example than both the Prime Minister of England and the First Minister of Scotland being of Hindu and Islamic faiths, respectively. Now, can there be a crown without a Christian church? I think the, the English crown could not exist, or could not exist as we know it, without an English church. Now, in a number of countries, a number of uh, Muslim countries, Arab countries, as a result of the colonial experience, what were in fact constitutional monarchies were installed in Egypt, for example, in Iraq, and th there's one that still exists today, and that is in, in Morocco. Now, none of them, of course, are Christians, they are Muslims, but uh, constitutional monarchy is quite compatible with the Muslim religion. I lived in Morocco for a few years, and I must say it was a, a country of law and order. Uh, even polygamy was limited, because although we know that polygamy is possible uh, with Muslims, there was also a strict rule that you had to be able to afford, not only want to have more than one wife, but you had to afford more than one wife. You had to maintain them in a certain position and very few men can afford. Well, we're very expensive, David. That's the biggest man. problem. You know, and there's lots of us and you've got even more trouble. Yes. And I must say that the Muslim people of Morocco lived peacefully with the Jewish people. That was very much the influence of the king. Because unlike the other Arab countries, Morocco was still a constitutional monarchy, not one which we would understand 
the constitutional monarchy more like what occurred in Britain after the Glorious Revolution, because the king still had a considerable amount of power, particularly executive power, but it was still a constitutional monarchy with a parliament and with a relatively free press, which was the case in Egypt. Although they didn't have the most uh, desirable of kings, he was still, Farouk was still a constitutional monarch and certainly a better Egypt prevailed then until the Republic took over. Libya was a constitutional monarchy and uh, there was one particularly in Iraq which worked very well and which was overthrown by a military revolt and the military set up a dictatorship which eventually led to the horrors we have seen in Iraq. It's all under Egyptian influence because of uh, Nasser in Egypt. Uh, constitutional monarchy worked well and it worked well in Afghanistan for a brief period. In fact, uh, the interesting thing sometimes is, is to speak to taxi drivers or Uber drivers who come from a different background. And I've spoken to a, a few older Afghan taxi drivers in Sydney who I said, well, well, did Afghanistan ever have a good period, a golden period? And without my prompting, one taxi driver said, yes, it was under the king. King Mohammed, and there was a wonderful king that they had in Afghanistan, but it was a constitutional monarchy. Well, so constitutional monarchy does not need the Christian religion to work and work well. Well, sure, that shows how robust the constitutional monarchy structure is and that it is a structure fundamentally to contain politics. So that's a very interesting yes. story. Look, David, you and I are both... I've suggested, if I may interrupt, I've suggested to my Jewish friends that they should restore... The, the, the monarchy to Israel and have a, another King David or King Solomon because of the break. The, the problem in Israel is not the absence of a monarchy, though. It's, it's having a single house and a house which is elected by proportional representation. Well, look, David, uh, you and I are both in Sydney and it really is the eve of the coronation. Now, I can't help but notice that when we had World Pride Month or whatever it was, the entire city was wrapped in glitter and rainbows, even the columns of shopping centres and there were flags all through the train station. You couldn't go anywhere without walking underneath a rainbow or a trans flag. But I don't see a single piece of decoration for the coronation in the streets of Sydney. And considering that one is a minority event and this is for all Australians, I am quite disappointed. Are you shocked that there isn't any pageantry going on with the councils, particularly Sydney in the heart of Australia here? I'm shocked that there isn't some recognition. I thought, for example, particularly if it hadn't been a Saturday night, Saturday night has its own problems, but I would have thought there would have been places where you could have had large screens showing the coronation so people could come together, for example, in parks and places and watch it together on a big screen so that the, the magnificence of the occasion would be made even greater. I'm surprised that there hasn't been that. I'm also su surprised. I, I don't think a, a public holiday was necessary. There was talk of a public holiday. I thought having a public holiday at the time of the funeral of the Queen was inappropriate. I didn't think that was necessary. But any, anyway, having a public holiday was not at all necessary for the coronation. But I was astounded to be phoned today by a journalist from the Sydney Morning Herald, and she was telling me that the government had decided 
that they would light two buildings, two minor buildings uh, uh, in the metropolitan area in purple, but they would not light the sails of the opera house purple because, and one of their concerns was the expense. And I thought, a government concerned with expense when they throw billions away all the time over all sorts of activities which are going to wreck the economy of the state in relation to energy, for example. Uh, but to talk about economy and to have two buildings still uh, flooded with purple, I thought that was a studied insult by the New South Wales government. I can't, I can't imagine that uh, Mr. Mins was involved in this. I'm like those people who say, those people in Russia who say, if only Stalin knew what was really happening, or if only Hitler knew what was really happening. Well, I'm saying, if only Mr. Mins knew what was really happening. But I think that is a studied insult, a childish, infantile studied insult by the New South Wales government. I can understand the Prime Minister going to Britain, he says, he says he's a lifelong Republican. No one's a lifelong Republican. You're not born and you're not in your crib talking about a Republic. You can't be a lifelong Republican. For somebody who hasn't really had a real job all his life, I don't think she should be skiting about being a lifelong Republican. And I notice that he's going to swear the oath uh, when, he's, when apparently there's going to be a public calling on the on stating the oath. Uh, I'm not surprised that uh, he's going to do that because he does it every three years. He goes into Parliament and swears the oath of allegiance. I think oaths uh, have some meaning. And if you treat the oath of allegiance with such, such uh, unimportance, watch them when they go into court and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They're obviously also going to quite capable of rubbishing that if they're prepared to rubbish the oath of allegiance. I am appalled by our politicians, but as I have said, and I wrote it in a book, uh, I think the current breed of politicians is of a very low standard. Finally, David, tell me, what are you looking forward to most with the coronation? For me, I really love it when they play Zadok the Priest. That's the sort of transcendent moment with that big swell of music. That's when I feel like we're finally looking at a royal event. What are you looking forward to? Well, I, I agree with you, and that's the anointing, because that takes us back to the ancient Israeli kings, the Jewish kings. And I think the, the words of Zadok the priest tell us that, and it, it, it reminds us of our Judeo-Christian origins in our religion, and that then leads immediately to the, to the actual crowning. I think that is that becomes the most solemn part of the service, and and musically a magnificent part of the service. I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and the, the, king, uh, the king is consecrated in that act. It, it emphasizes the Judeo-Christian nature of the service, which I think is very important. So I, I, I'm with you there. Well, David Flint, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And viewers can find David right here on ADH-TV every week with his show, Save the Nation. That's all from us here at Alexandra Marshall Live. We will catch you next week.